and welcome. You're listening to Nature's a Hoot with Tom Marath and Hannah Shaw, the wildlife podcast from the Hawk Conservancy Trust. As you know, we are all about birds at the Trust, but birds don't live alone. They're part of a whole ecosystem. So the podcast is our chance to take a more general look at wildlife beyond birds. If you're itching to know more about biodiversity, or barn owls, or eager to explore the worlds of woodlands and wetlands. Basically, if you like wildlife, you are in good company. And you don't need to be an expert. We've got that covered as we're joined by some of the greatest voices in conservation to tell us more about what's happening right now in the wild world around us. Coming up in this month's episode, we'll be joined by none other than Megan McCubbin, naturalist, conservationist, and of course, the latest member of the Spring Watch presenting team. Megan joined us to discuss her work in TV and communicating about the natural world, and also her book, co-authored alongside our president, Chris Packham. It's exciting stuff. So, Hannah, how's things with you? How are the, how are the tadpoles doing? You told us about finding some tadpoles that were basically... They were doomed, weren't they? In a shallow puddle on a <laughs> on a lane, been run over. How are your tadpoles? Um, I have one tadpole now, which I think wow. is a triumph. <laughs> well, it sounded like they're in a pretty bad way when you got them. So one is yeah. better than none. Let's let's say that. Absolutely, yeah. So one tadpole, I will I'll say still going strong. I don't want to jinx it, but he seems happy swimming around. Got very, very tiny little legs coming through. So that's Ooh, very exciting. exciting. How's things with your pond and you generally? Uh, yeah, no, I'm pretty good. Um, the weather's a bit here, there and everywhere. So we're kind of dro- dodging the showers and my garden's gone wild, which is great. Right. Like there's lots, plenty of cover for birds and stuff around now, which is brilliant. My pond, uh, I don't want to say I'm disappointed, but but I am going to say I'm disappointed. <laughs> Um, this is the thing with wildlife isn't it you never quite know what's going to happen and there is I mean I'm sure people will be thinking there's always something happening down there and there's always it's always good to have that access for water for other wildlife but I have seen absolutely nothing coming to my wild wildlife pond the occasional pigeon comes down and like cocks its head and looks down into the water and promptly like turns its beak up at that and flies off somewhere else so (laughs) It's what not about going Delilah? too well. She's not yeah, been Deli- in, in it. <laughs> well, no, she could probably just about fit her a couple of paws in there. It's quite small, um, but uh, no, I think I have heard her having a sneaky drink from it, which I feel a bit. That's probably not good, is it? Like for My wildlife or for her? Ours. Really? Yeah. <laughs> My dog likes drinking from it. She's probably eaten all the wildlife then. That's probably what it is. She's just like... <laughs> yeah, my dog also drinks from the pond frequently and also barks at her own reflection, <laughs> which is quite funny to watch. <laughs> um, yeah, what about other wildlife? I do have something to report. Um, a blue tit went in the bird box. Fantastic, excellent. Just went in and came back out again. But it did go Just in. Just like window shopping. Yeah. So that's good. That is awesome. I'll tell you what is, yeah. is good, um, and I love seeing them every year. They're, I think, I mean, obviously birds of prey, but uh, in terms of other birds, they're probably 
one of my all-time favourite birds. The swifts are back, which is like the sound of summer, isn't it? And mm. uh, I went down into into Salisbury over the weekend um, to to go shopping, and they were all. It was raining, and I thought, oh, we won't see a great deal down here. But they were they were going for it. They were really going for it. I probably saw maybe 20 or 25 swifts all like giving that screaming sound that they make all flying around um down by one of the parks there near near the river and just yeah that it was a really horrible gray damp day and that really cheered me up to see them that's like it's just such a nice feeling yeah i love seeing the swifts when they come back and the swallows and martins as well we put up a, mm. a martin cup nest, but nothing yet. I haven't actually seen very many martins. I'm a bit, and I'm a bit worried about how many swift, not swifts, swallows there have been as well. I feel like there there aren't as many as last year, but maybe, maybe it's just because they're not all back yet. Yeah, I wonder whether the weather plays a part as well because we had it quite yeah. nice a few weeks ago, and then yeah, I wonder what it's like on their migration as well. Whether that makes a big difference yeah, to the speed know. at which they get here. Um, yeah. But um, no, I agree with you. It's it must I mean, affect them. Yeah, it seems to have taken a long time for things to to get around. But there's definitely both house martins and swallows flying around at the hawk conservancy at the moment, which is really nice. And it's always amazing to me when they arrive midway through the Wings of Africa display because it's like, hang on a minute, you've just you've just come from here with all these birds. Yeah. <laughs> they must get here and go. Oh my God, there is an African yeah. fish eagle there. I've just flown I'm all this away. Taken a wrong turn. <laughs> <laughs> just got in one big circle <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was gonna say i did have a really nice trip uh to wales i was on holiday last week oh yes and it was nice to see some different stuff so obviously you saw a lot of sheep um <laughs> but <laughs> classic wildlife did also see <laughs> some nice um wheat ears which i wasn't completely certain on the idea of an, a wheat ear now i definitely am so that's good um and tree pipits which were nice um red starts and they're all birds that i mm. don't really see around here um and also a merlin so that's <gasps> always nice wow well we were only talking about merlins last month weren't we on the podcast yeah. and how tricky they can be to see kind of where we oh, are and osprey <laughs> and an osprey sorry i forgot the, uh, the biggest you, one yeah i uh, just forget the osprey how boring <laughs> ospreys uh, nobody wants to see them <laughs> that's cool so were you were you mm. on a um, were you on a bit of protected ground there or something to see all this stuff or was it just kind of public footpaths or what? Um, all all footpaths, but um, the Merlin was actually at the place that we stayed, but it's very remote. It's a little cottage up in the mountains, um, so the Merlin was just up there. Uh, the Osprey, yes, was on. Um, it's not a nature reserve, but it's it is protected, so it's a it's a pair that are nesting um, up there. I think it's the Dovey um, Osprey Project, which is one of the Osprey projects in Wales, um, and they've got a platform, so the ospreys are nesting up on the platform, and it's in a forest, like a forestry managed forest there, um, so we could just see them through the binoculars mm. uh, or one of them on the on the nest. So that was nice. That's superb. I mean, I think I've, I've yeah. I, don't, I think I've only ever seen one osprey really, really high up, like on migration. And then I've seen that's kind of just out and about. But then I've gone to specifically see them at like nesting sites mm. where we know they're going to be there. Did you hear about that um, incident with the osprey who had their nest platform yeah. cut down? That was, yeah, that was horrible, awful. wasn't it? Yeah. I think that was in northern Wales. Yeah. Um, 
yeah i saw that i saw it on twitter that's horrible like how just can't understand what would possess someone to want to do that no absolutely not they're awful they're just such amazing birds and to have flown that distance back from you know their kind of wintering grounds to come back here and then that happens to them just at the point where they're they're starting to nest get a partner lay eggs hopefully have youngsters um yeah it's kind of heartbreaking when i read that actually um yeah i think they did have eggs in that nest but but um i guess the one sort of well it's not positive but that pair at least because it's early in the season they think the pair might be able to there's still time isn't there there's still time for them yeah yeah but obviously you wouldn't want it's not yeah it's a less than ideal situation but hopefully they can kind of rectify it yeah should we move on with the rest of the episode we've got loads to do let's get cracking shall we So now, as always, it's time for a bit of fun with our Matter of Fact Challenge. And this pitches you and I, Hannah, against one another to come up with the best fact in the chosen category. Uh, Now, what was the category last month? Bravest animal, I believe. That was it. And, oh my goodness me, looking here, uh, it was a first-time win for you, Hannah. Yes! Wow! (laughs) How do you feel? Smug. Yeah, well, I, I remember that feeling off in the distant past. <laughs> now that, uh, yeah, um, unfortunately, people weren't weren't impressed with the bravery of an animal that literally swims into the mouth of a shark. Somehow that didn't quite pique people's th- think thought of bravery. But obviously your blue sheep just, just pipped us to the post there. Yeah. All right, well, with renewed gusto for you to hold on to and a winning streak for me to regain any honour that I have left, shall we go for this month's challenge? Yeah, let's go. This month's Matter of Fact challenge is... Most Beautiful Insect. So, when I think of uh, beautiful insects, um, I'm guessing quite a lot of people probably think of maybe butterflies. There's some pretty amazing species of uh, beetles out there, especially in tropics of the world. Maybe an animal or a creature people wouldn't expect to be beautiful, um, is a moth. So I'm going to go with a moth. Um, And you and I have both been quite lucky, actually, to be part of um, some of the moth surveys that happen here in Reggie's Meadow. Um, Mm. And I'm always really pleasantly surprised with how gorgeous some of these little insects can be. And the one that has kind of always stuck with me from the first time um, uh, kind of being around moths at close quarters is our very own elephant hawk moth. Now, if you've never seen one of these, where have you been? Because they are the most stunning (laughs) species of insect in the world. Obviously, that's why I've picked it for most beautiful insect. Um, You find it in parks, gardens, woodland edges, rough grassland, even sand dunes. And uh, so they're pretty widespread, really, across the country. Uh, Farlums, woodlands, even in towns on occasion as well. Um, and uh, they they are the most gorgeous colours. I was trying to describe them, really. They're kind of sort of olive-coloured with sort of bright pink barring all over them um, on their wings and their body. Um, and, they're, yeah, they are just absolutely beautiful. They've got they're obviously furry, just like a moth, just like a moth normally is. Um, I, I just think they're absolutely amazing. Um, so you'll see the caterpillars, you'll see those around in kind of July to September, they're quite obvious to see, so they're kind of grey, greenish, 
They've got these massive eye spots, big black eye spots on towards the front of their head. And obviously when they're disturbed, they kind oh, of yeah. swell these up. Um, and uh, and it supposedly scares off predators to look like great big eyes looking back at a predator. And we see that in other parts of the animal kingdom as well, don't we? Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I think they're absolutely amazing. Mm. And anyone would be very hard pushed to beat them for, for beautiful in the in, in the insect world. But uh, you can try if you want. <laughs> Well, good call, Tom. And uh, points for native as yes. well. Well done. Yes. Definitely. Um, so my contender, um, and I took quite a long time to decide because it came down to two, but they were, they're both bugs. But in the end, I went for the Picasso bug. Mm. I don't know if you've ever seen one before. I'm going to Google it. Um, but they are really quite striking um very small only about six to eight millimeters long and they're a shield backed bug so they're a true bug they're not a beetle and they're sort of oval shaped sort of yellow and cream background and they have these gorgeous um bright green spots that are outlined um in red and black oh wow i've just got them really really pretty i've just i'm just looking at a picture now because i hadn't seen one before yeah really wow They look like and, kind of like an Aboriginal painting. Yeah, I think they're incredible. And they're found, so they're found in subtropical forest edges um, and the bush in sub-Saharan Africa. They have quite a patchy distribution, so in lots of different patches, like across across um, southern, east, west and central Africa. Um, they eat citrus leaves and they also feed on the coffee plant. So bug after my own heart. <laughs> Are they really hyper? <laughs> yeah, like me. <laughs> um, also, they are a brilliant example of what's called a posomatic coloration, which is similar to what you mentioned about the um, the hawk moth caterpillar. But it's a warning coloration on the bug because the bug emits a noxious substance. So it's actually it's sort of an honest representation it's very brightly colored because it doesn't taste nice and that's called a posomatic coloration so they're smelly but beautiful luckily the luckily we're <laughs> just going on looks here aren't we um, it's not like smell vision it's just looks no no but what i'm saying is they're beautiful but don't let the smell of them uh take away from <laughs> their beauty <laughs> so yeah so that's mine the picasso bug and just so people understand the difference, I wanted to just give a quick explanation of the difference between beetles and bugs because they do look like a beetle, um, but beetles and bugs are different orders of insect and they're different in that they have different types of life cycles. They have physical differences as well, but the Picasso bug is an example of a bug that physically sort of looks a bit like a beetle, but we know it's a bug because of the life cycle. So in bugs the life cycle goes from larva to nymph and then through the nymphal stages it molts until it becomes an adult so that's what a bug does but a beetle has a pupal stage so it has the larva and then it pupates you know where it goes into like the casing like a butterfly and or a moth the same as that and then it comes out of that as an adult so that's the difference between beetles and bugs that's nice. Somebody might need that in a pub quiz one day. Yeah, you've exactly. Just, you've just won them that round. <laughs> <laughs> That's but yeah, amazing. so mine is the Picasso bug. 
Okay then, so we've got the uh, the elephant hawk moth and we've got the Picasso bug pitched against one another in this month's Matter of Fact Challenge. Uh, remember, it's up to you, wherever and however you're listening to Nature's a Hoot, to vote for which fact you think best fits the bill of most beautiful insect. Yeah, so head over to our Instagram stories or our Twitter feed, both at Hawk Conservancy, to vote. We will, of course, be revealing the winner of this month's Matter of Fact Challenge next time. So we are really excited for what's coming up next. It's time for us to introduce you to our latest guest on Nature's a Hoot, and it is Megan McCubbin. Yeah, we're really looking forward to introducing you to Megan, and many of you will be familiar with her work already, of course, from the new CBBC programme, Planet Defenders, to the nation's beloved Springwatch. Yep, we caught up with Megan last month to talk TV, new books and getting back to nature. Okay, well we're very excited today to be joined by our latest guest on Nature's a Hoot, uh, Megan McCubbin. Thank you so much for um, joining us today. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure for Hannah and I to talk to you. Um, How are you keeping now that... um, well, our restrictions and return to normal life is slowly, slowly moving forward, isn't it? It's weird, isn't it? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's very nice to be on. Um, and it's lovely now that the sun is coming out. I know there was a bit of snow recently, which threw everyone off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. how weird. It was very, very bizarre. Um, but it's nice. I live in central Southampton and um, I live in the city centre. So there's been lots of kind of more noises and people moving around and things which is kind of like oh wow this is happening people are Mm. doing things again slightly so um yeah still being careful but it's nice to be outside in the sunshine and have a little bit more freedom than we have done yeah Yeah. definitely are you managing to get out and see some wildlife as well or are you too far too close in the city center to do that uh well i live quite close to the new forest so i try to get over there at least once a week as much as possible to be honest um i'm currently writing so i'm at my laptop screen pretty much 14 hours a day um so i i do one walk a day i make sure that i get at least an hour outside every day stretch my legs bit of exercise and i go out and i go to the marina which is quite close to me um and as a, my, i've got my pigeon flock I've got a flock. i call them my flock they're not really obviously <laughs> but I, um, I go i sometimes i nip to tesco i buy them some frozen peas on my way and um, I'll sit there and I'll feed the, the flock of pigeons and there's about, I don't know, probably about 50 of them. And they do the most amazing aerial display when they all take off at one. It's so loud, but they do it right above your head. Yes. Um, I like to go and see my pigeons every day. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, I, I live um, in in Salisbury and we travel into the city centre there and we have pigeons doing exactly the same thing. And then I remember the peregrines nesting on the top of Salisbury Cathedral. And I think maybe you want to keep that down on the yeah. down low pigeons like go and do it somewhere else otherwise <laughs> a few of you might not make it <laughs> yeah but that's part of the amazing thing though isn't it it's part of that really cool cycle and the whole idea of peregrines I mean, it's so exciting if you're going out for your walk and you see a peregrine take on a pigeon and get a pigeon oh that is a good walk isn't it <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely absolutely um so Megan you've I mean obviously it's a a huge passion for you it kind of comes through in everything that you do you love wildlife you love um animals can you kind of remember when that kind of first started for you is it something that you've always enjoyed or was there a moment that's like no actually this has really captured me it's really hard to pinpoint a specific moment just because it's always been part of my growing up 
um, wildlife has always been around. It had it in my bedroom, in the bathroom, in the living room, in any other room in the house. <laughs> there, was, there was always an animal of some sort, um, sometimes much to my mother's dismay, particularly when it was the tarantulas or the snakes. Um, oh, but wow. I, so, yeah, I mean, growing up, I was always surrounded by wildlife. Having you know, grown up with Chris Packham as my stepdad, he very much opened my eyes early on to everything. You know, he was a big fan, of course, of the educational. So it wasn't just natural history, but art galleries. Oh, we'd painstakingly go around every art gallery, have to read every single plaque of every painting. <laughs> Five-year-old. Whew, that was a big day out. Um, but no, the wildlife bit was great. I mean, he obviously was filming um, when he met me, and I met him when I was two. And from that point onwards, he would try and take me on every film shoot he possibly could, or that I was allowed to go on. Wow. And- started traveling really early on um, and seeing wildlife in the wild and then of course coming quite close to it in in captivity and of course you know British wildlife as well which is fantastic so I kind of had it from every angle so it's really hard to pinpoint a specific moment where I thought okay you know I've always loved wildlife did I know that I was going to go into a career in it no probably not until my A-levels but I knew it would always be a part of my life regardless and um, yeah it's just part and parcel of who I am. Was there anything else you like wanted to be like? Because a lot of people we've spoken to, because I didn't really know that conservation really existed. And we we always talk about when you go for like a careers day or something, or a meeting with the careers advisor and say I want to work with animals. It's like, well, what on earth? What on earth can we suggest for you other than working in a pet shop or something? But did you want to do anything else other than work with animals? Yeah, it's funny actually because everyone always says you want to work at a pet shop, or do you want to be a zookeeper? That was yeah, yeah. Well, you could be a zookeeper. No, 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 so much more. Yeah, so for me, it wasn't so much that I wasn't aware that conservation was taking place because I was meeting scientists and going around and traveling, like I said, I was was very aware of the job opportunities that were out there. Um, But for me, I'm dyslexic, quite heavily dyslexic. And I really struggled in school really badly. My maths is atrocious, like awful to this day, cannot times tables just over my head, really, really struggle. Um, and English was really hard as well, uh, and and many of the sciences, you know, chemistry, some of biology. First school that I went to, I didn't have any support whatsoever for my dyslexia before it was diagnosed. Um, and I remember I sat on a table, and I remember a, a teacher saying not a very nice comment. I mean, this is in the early uh, late 1990s, um, and it was it was awful. And I felt like I couldn't do science to be honest. And then I changed schools and I managed to get the help that I needed for dyslexia and learn how to learn with it um, and kind of then focused more on science and was able to kind of work out a route that would work for me. Um, so for me, it was always a bit of like a battle in my head of should I go for what I really want to do, but can I do it? Mm. Um, and then I just thought, you know, if you don't try these things, you know, everyone's individual, everyone learns differently anyway. Um, you know, I, and I learn very differently <laughs> to a lot of people, but I thought, oh, you know, I have to go for it. I have to try it. I have to do what I love. But I did actually train in drama. So I did all my Lambda qualifications and I thought I'd go to performing arts school and everything. Little did I know that that actually would probably be quite helpful down the road doing TV stuff. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's worked out. <laughs> <laughs> so was that kind of a smooth transition then for you? If you were kind of always around um, kind of sets and and working with people who work with these animals does it feel quite comfortable then to be kind of sitting where you are now being a spring watch presenter which is like every 
young person's dream watching that program that's where we that's where you want to get to isn't it I never imagined I'd be presenting the watches if I'm honest even if you'd have asked me this a year ago I mean probably a year ago I would have known I was going to be on spring watch so if yes. you asked me 14 15 months ago I would have been like no don't be silly that's <laughs> on the watches um so it all happened really fast and I think for me because I grew up around film crews whilst I wasn't always you know always comfortable being in front of the camera initially because it is an alien thing and it is something that you build confidence doing over time um I definitely I knew how they worked you know I knew what was needed I knew which shots needed I knew you know about sound and about kind of planning film shoots so um and before I I did any kind of well actually in the middle of presenting I worked for Lush Cosmetics as, as part of their uh, film department and I went and made wildlife films for Lush which not many people knew that they did but they do and they do it fantastically a uh, fantastic company and um yeah so I was kind of a wildlife researcher so I'd research all the films put them together so yeah I think it gave me a good grounding to understand how the industry works that's for sure that's mm. probably very helpful to the people you work with as well because you understand their plight and all of their hard work they have to go through to get what we see as the finished product don't you so there's a lot of hard work that goes on behind the scenes it's um yeah it's incredible that it all condenses down into an hour if I'm honest because the amount of meetings and the amazing people that work behind the camera it's just you know it's one big family and it's you know the ideas and the thought process and how it all comes together is just amazing particularly of course this year at a time of COVID the fact that Mm. able to broadcast Mm. oh is a huge triumph and that's definitely down to all the wonderful tech wizards researchers producers and everyone that's just worked tirelessly on it i think the one of the most impressive things about Springwatch as well is the fact that it's all live so do you find it, it there must be times sometimes when there's funny things that happen or something doesn't quite go to plan <laughs> like do you have any funny stories of things that have happened with Springwatch? Yeah, things often don't go to plan. Yeah. <laughs> what happens? Um, yeah, I mean, there's always something. You know, I've been presenting next to Chris, and with Chris, you never know what he's going to say. Right. So throughout the course of the day, we have rehearsals and we have, um, you know, meetings and we go over and make sure everything's to time, making sure that, of course, we're not going to go over because we've got that fixed hour, of course. Um, and with Chris and I, we don't, you know, we don't, we have a script, of course, a rough script that is given to us with all the notes and everything else. But we like to obviously we put things in our own words and it's not concrete when we go into the live show. It's kind of still very fluid. And um, that's the way that Chris always works. He doesn't, he never, you know, he gets given scripts and he'll read through them and totally, you know, put things in. And then sometimes, you know, we'll be live or he'll tell me before we go live, he'll say, I've got a joke for this segment, but I'm not going <laughs> to tell you until I do it. <laughs> And that, and the funny spoil thing, the effect yeah exactly and then I'm kind of waiting for the joke to come at any point and I don't know what <laughs> kind of joke it's going to be if it's any kind of you know cheeky jokes that he does put in you have to obviously you can't smile <laughs> you, have to, you know you have to um be professional at all times so uh yeah he, he does that occasionally which is always quite fun and then of course technology is really challenging um I remember it was towards the end of spring watch last year and we had the most amazing news that the white storks had successfully um, hatched chicks. Mm. And we were, I think it was actually the last episode. And I had to describe um, the vision that people were seeing on the screen. So behind, we, we, we of course look at a cameraman and the next to the cameraman or camerawoman, camera operator is a screen. So we can see what's going out live on the program. So that helps us so that when we know that we're talking about white storks, we're describing the picture that everyone else can see. Cool. 
anyway, um, this went down, <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I don't know what the audience is seeing, but I'm just going to talk <laughs> about white storks. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I get it right. So there's always those kind of technical things that go wrong, and um, you know, when funny things happen live, that you have to kind of always be prepared for. That's the fun thing is you never know what's going to happen if things go down, and you have to pick up suddenly. You have to be prepared at all, at all times for kind of worst case scenario, which actually it's amazing how they do it because hardly anything goes wrong to be honest but it's um you never know what's going to happen so always always be prepared yeah do you, um and spring watch 2020 that that was your was that your live tv debut was that the first time you'd done live tv how did it feel were you nervous yeah i think you know you go live on bbc2 to yeah millions i mean i think it's always a bit nerve-wracking um, I presented before I started presenting back in 2017, but that was all pre-recorded. So live is very different. You know, the thing that I found um, kind of most interesting is, of course, you've got your earpiece in and I there's different types of things that you can hear. Um, but I like to hear everyone. So you've got maybe three people in your ear talking and it's kind of getting the balance right of that and kind of thinking about what you're saying whilst also listening and then adapting what you're saying yeah. to time or whatever it might be. So that was definitely a, th- a thing that I kind of perhaps overlooked going into it, but has been, yeah, I really, actually I do really enjoy, I love doing live now. I really enjoy it. It's got a thrill to it and a bit of adrenaline. And yeah, it's a lot of fun and it's nice that we can bring live wildlife to people. Yeah, absolutely. It's sat in their homes. I think that's just a really nice element about it. Well, you're great to watch. I love Spring Watch. I always really look forward to all the watches when they're going to come on. <laughs> mm. Um, can you give us any um, sort of sneak previews of what we might be looking forward to for Spring Watch this year? Lots of great action. It's still We're still working on it. There's still lots of people working tirelessly around the clock. Um, but no, there's going to be some, you know, fascinating wildlife as ever. We've mm. got a really great place where our live cameras are going to be. Can't reveal too much about that yet. But um, let's just say that I've heard whispering that it is one of the most amazing places. So we're very excited. We'll see what happens. Amazing very yeah. exciting even less predictable is not just the fact that it's live but also live with wildlife which invariably mm. at the moment you need it to be there is it's not going to be there <laughs> so that must also come with its challenges as well yeah definitely you never know what what things are going to be doing or well, the moment you hear oh we have a badger live badger live go to badger and we'll go to badger and then it's like that frame well a few seconds ago this was <laughs> Um, yeah, but it's part of the fun of it, and it's great. You know, when you do get that amazing bit of behaviour, it's just a gem. It's mm. there's nothing yeah. really like it. So um, it keep yeah, it keeps everyone on our toes, and it's quite funny at the end of the day. People love it when things go wrong and when yeah. things frame or the animals are misbehaving. It adds a bit of character. Oh, for sure. I mean, you'll know, but we we fly our birds for our demonstrations every single day. And invariably, people's favourite bit is when the birds are just doing completely their own thing. They go fly off over the valley somewhere, enjoying themselves. And we're left there looking like complete numpties, not really knowing what we're doing. So that is the best bit about working with animals, isn't it? Uh, It is. I remember, so when um, Chris used to kind of sometimes use the birds that you have at the Hawk Conservancy for talks. This is going back years when this was more of a... Uh, a thing that people did in that mm. in that time obviously taking birds for talks and things and my school assembly I think I was must have only been in like year four or something I was quite young um they asked for uh for the end of year assembly whether Chris could come and give a talk and whether he could bring any kind of his, of his animals so we brought our snake um we had a milk snake and um also brought Marmite the barn owl from the oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, Mar- Marmite I think he lives in our downstairs kitchen for our uh, downstairs bathroom for 
um, a little a little while, and I would and I actually learned to fly birds with Marmite, and um, and then so that I could do it in the assembly, and it was all going really well in the assembly. He was flying back and forth, and then all of a sudden looked up, and then he flew up and sat on one of the beams in top of the on the top of the chapel, um, and I think was there for about seven hours. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I remember a very similar thing happening to me when we used to go and do school talks, much like you're you're describing there to children. It's a very, very tall school hall. And up in the roof, they had um, those little tiles that almost, I don't know what they're, what they're for, really, but they just cover the roofing. It's just kind mm. of cosmetic. And one was ever so slightly ajar. And my bar now called Lily decided to go and sit up there in in the roof. Like, and it, was, it must have been, I don't know, 20 foot up to the roof. And it's like, have you got any ladders? <laughs> no <laughs> is there any way to get up into the roof space no <laughs> so it's just like all oh, right we'll just have to wait then so luckily not quite uh not quite seven hours but yeah a tantalizing few minutes of um waiting to see what would happen but um so Megan the first probably the first time I encountered you was um I remember seeing you do some investig- investigative journalism um around bear bile farms up for BBC three I think it was at the time obviously quite an upsetting subject really how how did you find working on something kind of as difficult and distressing as that um I think those topics uh whilst they are difficult and distressing absolutely I feel that they're very important to tell the stories of you know we have to be aware of the problems that are happening when it comes to our wildlife so that we are better informed and therefore better able and better equipped to be able to put in place the solutions that need to happen um, and it, when it came to bears, typically Asiatic black bears that are caught up in the bear bile farming industry, um, I actually went and lived in China for four months and worked for a charity called Animals Asia. And they um, rehabilitate bears that are caught up in the bear bile industry. And when we say bear bile industry, what I mean by that is Asiatic black bears, Tibetan brown bears, sometimes sun bears um, are captured and they are living their lives out in these cages, which are often so small that the bears are unable to turn around. And their um, bile is harvested from the gallbladder. Bile is a digestive fluid. And essentially a catheter is inserted potentially every day if there's demand for it, or there might be some sort of catheter that's in there all the time and a bag hanging down on kind of like a corset Mm. which goes around the, the body of the bear. And it's constantly drip feeding this bile. It's very painful, full of infections, because of course antibiotics and veterinary care is very expensive and the people that mm. have these bears it's not the funds to look after them properly so they're they're you know psychologically and physically very very unwell um so animals asia one of the most amazing charities um and they've rescued hundreds of bears and they've got the most amazing facilities where unfortunately the bears can never go back to the wild they can spend you know 20 30 years in these cages there's never mm-hmm. any chance for successful rehabilitation back to the wild but they live in the most amazing in- large enclosures they've got enrichment plan they learn how to be bears again and it's wonderful so i was a, a behavioral specialist for them and i went out there to try and understand well to work with a couple bears in particular that were displaying some different kind of behaviors than usual and um, to try and work out why and what could be done to kind of you know ha- help the situation and enrichment and learn and ha- add a helping hand to um the fantastic work that they do so i came back from that um, and a friend mentor, actually, she's kind of um, my role model throughout all of this. She's definitely my mentor. Uh, Ruth PC got in contact with me when she was working for BBC and said, we've got this series called Undercover Tourists. And we had a story that we really wanted to run, but it's just fallen out. Have you got any ideas 
of what we want to do. We want to investigate some sort of illegal wildlife trade issue. And I said, oh, funny you should say that. I've just kind of come back from China. How about we go and do um, bear bar farming? And at that point, I'd never gone inside a farm before. I'd only been working with the bears that had been rescued and rehabilitated. Um, So uh, very quickly, um, I think, you know, we had conversations started in February about this episode for Undercover Tourists. And I think two, three months later, I was on a plane um, out to Vietnam um, to investigate the farms out there. And it was unbelievable. You go to this stretch of road um, and there's people's houses and garages and all the doors are open. And there's just these bears in cages in people's kitchens. Um, and wow. it's just, you know, and, and, and in Vietnam, I mean, the laws are very different wherever you are, whether you're in China or Laos or Vietnam. But in Vietnam specifically, um, you're allowed to keep bears, but you're not allowed to extract bile. So it doesn't really make much sense because bears are large animals. You know, they do need quite a lot of food, even though they're mm. not really fed on a nutritious diet. They're fed more on kind of this sludge of leftovers and very cheap antibiotics. Um, and so you're not going to house a bear unless you're getting some kind of economic profit mm. from it. So we went out and investigated that. And yeah, of course, it's tough. And seeing those bears in those situations is devastating. You know, I often think back to a few of them. Um, you know, wonder where they are now. Are, are they still alive? Is there any chance of them being rescued? I don't know. Um, so yeah, it's not not an easy thing. But for me, you know, I want to go and face these issues head on. The issues that I care about more than anything. Um, and I think it's important that we expose and show and also offer alternative solutions for the communities and the people um, who, who live in these villages or areas mm. that perhaps the only way to feed their family is to do this i mean it's not so much the case for bear bile um but certainly is the case for for other uh, illegal wildlife trade issues hmm. so you know invest in solutions invest in alternatives and transitions and also you know talk about talk about the problems at hand so for me that was a really important film one that was close to my heart and i was really grateful to have the opportunity to do it and explore it yeah and two two very different um kind of views there of of the captive world for animals, isn't it? There's a, this really horrible end at the, the far end, which is purely exploitation, really. And then there's some there's people doing great work with animals in 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 captivity and you know looking after animals from the wild and hopefully successfully reintroducing them and you know educating people about the amazing work of well the amazing things that there are out there in the natural world that most people will never never get an opportunity to see. Exactly. I think it's so I get asked this all the time, you know, what's my opinion of animals in captivity? Yeah, I bet. And it's a complex answer because I say every single time, well, which place are you talking about? Because mm. every place is different and every place has different parameters. So for me, you know, I grew up look going to zoos. I went to Marwell Zoo, the ones on the Isle of Wight. You know, for me I connected with wildlife that was in captivity because I could get close to it, I could engage with it and I could see things that otherwise I was only gonna see in stories or on TV. So I think, you know, for captive areas, obviously welfare has got to be top priority. That's just, that goes without saying, you know, space, enrichment, obviously nutrition, everything needs to be kind of top-notch, veterinary care, of course, too. Um, and education is fundamental. Nobody working in captivity wants to see these birds in captivity. They'd much rather the birds were out in the wild, I think. Mm. You know, everyone would love to see all these animals out in the wild and thriving. But the ambassadors that we do have in captivity serve a really important role in engaging new audiences um, and and teaching them about conservation. So that, you know, young people that come into the Hawk Conservancy today, for example, 
will grow up thinking, oh my goodness, I just saw a barn owl. That was the most exciting thing ever. Let's go and see if we can see one in the wild. What can we do to protect them? You know, that's the kind of response that we want. If people leave those kind of places um, where the animals are well looked after and cared for and a spark is ignited and they are then going to dedicate, whether that's, I don't know, an hour or a week or an hour a month or their careers, their lifetime to wildlife, then you know, those animals are fantastic ambassadors. And as long as they're being, you know, properly cared for, um, then, you know, there's got, there's a place for that. And of course we can talk about captive breeding and rescues and everything else. You know, there's lots of areas for rescues to happen um, Mm. for animals that can't go back into the wild. So there's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting... It's a whole spectrum, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Big topic. We'll be here for hours. <laughs> yeah, we would. We would. So so let's move on. Fairly recently, I spotted that you've got a, a new television programme out as well for CBBC, um, Planet Defenders. Um, sounds fantastic. What's it all about? Thank you. Um, yeah, Planet Defenders. It was a lot of fun. Um, so there are six episodes, of which there are six kind of presenters, six environmental activists and campaigners um, and we all have our own episode although we do communicate with one another throughout the course of you know the beginning and the end of each one um, and we go and explore uh, an environmental cause close to our hearts we go and you know all, it's all done locally so wherever the presenter lives and it's an international field so there's um, two people that live in India someone was on the Falkland someone was in Kenya uh, and then there was myself and Jack Harris who was in the UK and for me um I really love sharks. Sharks are a big thing. I quite like predators. Anything with big teeth, talons, claws, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I fell in love with sharks when I started working at the Shark Club um, back in 2014, 2015. Uh, and I volunteered out there. And um, first time I got in contact, I saw a, a tiger shark was at like three in the morning. It was the night that I'd arrived and we went out to check out long lines that we were putting out just to um, understand the population dynamics of the species that were coming into this little island in the Bahamas and caught a female tiger shark that was, I think, 2.46 metres long. Wow. And I just remember the stars were shining, there was bioluminescence in the water, and I was holding on to the dorsal fin of this female tiger shark. And I just, I think my eyes were just pinging. <laughs> and I just, <laughs> I just thought she was the most beautiful thing that had ever existed on the planet. So that kind of started a love of sharks, really. And I, you know, spent a lot of time in Bimini. I've been back twice again and um, spent a lot of time researching different sharks anyway. So with Planet Defenders, I wanted to go and see the sharks around our UK coastline because often we don't appreciate just how amazing our marine world is in the UK. Mm. We've got so much biodiversity there. And people are always shocked to find that we've got 40 different shark species that come to UK waters. Some are wow. residentary, some are migratory, you know, that, that come and go. Um, but we've got loads of sharks and they're amazing. They're really, really cool. Um, but new research has come out to say that, you know, globally, 71% of shark populations have declined in the last 50 years. And that is shocking, really shocking. As an apex predator, they manage the ocean system. Um, without sharks, we don't have a healthy ocean. Um, so they're not only important you know, for biodiversity, but they're important for us. You know, sharks are often misrepresented and um, you know, they're deemed as these kind of killing machines, which yeah. is totally unfair. The Jaws effect. Exactly. Mm. It's, and it's really horrible. And you see these kind of articles of people who have written, you know, there's a photograph of a surfer and 10 metres away is, you know, a medium-sized shark. And they go, oh, a surfer narrowly escapes with life. <laughs> 
and it's like, oh dear. <laughs> and, and the terminology around sharks is often quite, you know, appalling, really. And um, and they're when you know I've spent a lot of time in the water with them, and they're the most curious, fascinating creatures, and they're really quite gentle and just want to know what you are. And as long as you know how to behave in the water with sharks, and you've done a bit of research and everything, you'll you, you'll be all right. And um, most of the time, of course, they are a wild animal, so you do need to be careful. And um, always good to add them. And <laughs> um, um, but I wanted to look at exactly how the UK was complicit in that decline of shark species, and it was really really surprising. So if you go into your local fish and chip shop, um, if you see something that's called rock salmon, or it might be abbreviated to rock, or potentially even called huss, what you're actually seeing is an umbrella term, which could be hiding a number of different species. You know, when you go to your fish and chip shop, when you go to a supermarket, you expect to know what you're buying. With rock salmon, rock huss, you, you've got no idea. Rock salmon isn't a species. It's not a type of salmon. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing. And what it actually is, is probably shark meat. So I went and I took DNA samples of lots of different places um, in a town uh, that was, um, you know, selling fish and chips. And I sent them off to the lab for analysis. 100% of the samples uh, came back as a species called spiny dogfish. It's a species that I have never seen in the wild. It's a species I would love to see in the wild. They're very beautiful little dogfish. They're kind of speckled. They kind of shine in the light. Very stunning. Um, but they've declined by 95% around British waters. Wow. And yet they're still being sold in fish and chip shops. Now, with that, I do have to say that the the samples that are being sold in fish and chip shops are coming from fisheries in America and Canada, where populations are doing better. But still, that species is listed as globally vulnerable. And we're still <sighs> eating it unknowingly in our fish and chip shops. It just makes it so hard because we're trying to be so conscious, aren't we, of mm. the things we're eating, you know, moving towards a more plant-based diet okay maybe still eating meat but eating it more in moderation and even if you're trying really hard to do that there's barrier beyond barrier isn't there it seems to to try to be more ethical about how we shop how we spend our money and, and what we consume it's it's a minefield it's impossible you know no one's got the hope any hope of being ethical or green even if they're trying to if things aren't labeled accurately you know yeah. if I did speak to the labelling body and they said that they um, recommend that it could be called dogfish or it could be called spiny dogfish if they knew what it was or if it could be called, you know, shark or something. But nobody calls it that. It's known as rock salmon. Yeah, I bet nobody would buy it nobody if it was would called dogfish. No, no. No, nobody, nobody would, would buy it. Buy. Especially if it had like the red label that said globally vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can eat an endangered species if you like. Uh, perhaps <laughs> not. Perhaps not. But I like to think that most people would turn away from that. Mm, yeah. 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 So as it's a kind of CVBC show, it's for children, young people getting excited about nature. Um, Planet Defenders will definitely have an audience of young people who want your job, basically. So if yeah. you could say anything to people that are out there who kind of fancy getting to where you are and are working, working with wildlife, but also working with talking to people about wildlife, inspiring them, what what advice would you give them? I think it's fantastic. I think we need more hands on deck right now more than ever. So anyone that wants to kind of come and train as a scientist or a wildlife presenter or a camera op or anything, absolutely go for it. It's a very, you know, whilst there, it is daunting and there's some of the statistics that we're facing and the news is always quite challenging when it comes to our climate and biodiversity. It's also a very exciting time to be in that field because there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of solutions to implement and therefore there's a lot of change to instigate. So I'd always really recommend it. Um, 
I would say for anyone that really wants to do it is, you know, be as practical as possible. Go out and volunteer wherever you can, whether there's a local wildlife hospital, whether there's a local wildlife charity, um, whether you could go out and engage and just get involved in the conversation as well. Social media is a really powerful tool for getting the, the um, you know, the message out there. And there's, you know, an amazing community of people who are so willing just to chat with you and talk and come up with ideas together. So get involved in that community, reach out to people, start kind of conversing about the issues you care about, start using your voice and, um, you know, lift other people up at the same time, you know, build a community um, and, yeah, get as much practical experience as possible. If you're into the presenting side of things, it's always a really good idea to practice presenting, make a little show reel if you want, get outside on your phone. You don't have to have a big fancy camera and, you know, phone's really good. Um, and just get out and document what you see and what you love because right, right now, you know, obviously lockdown is easing, but we're all kind of connected to wildlife a lot through our technology. And people love to see kind of your daily walks and what you're finding. So mm. posting that and um, enjoy that community and yeah, get stuck in, get your hands in. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I've certainly um, enjoyed that sort of community online. I mean, we all know social media has its good sides and bad sides, but I've certainly, especially during lockdown, you know, seeing people just getting out and about in nature more and, you know, making the most of their local patch as well has just been wonderful, I think, during COVID. It's really nice to see people really, I mean, appreciating what's right yeah. there on their doorsteps. The amount of people like who've now got wildlife ponds, there must be a yeah. huge spike over the last year of people who've got wildlife ponds in their garden. It's yeah, it's fantastic to see. It became kind of fashionable, didn't it? Everyone yeah. Was them, which is great. It's fantastic. It's what That's the fashion about. we need. Yeah. yeah. The kind of fast fashion we like. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, it was great to talk to Megan, wasn't it, Hannah? She was um, most accommodating with her time. So much so, actually, that... Um, we couldn't fit everything in that we wanted to in just one episode. Yeah, it was brilliant to talk to her. So it um, it's good, actually, that we've got some content for next next episode as well. But brilliant. We had so much to talk to Megan about. Yeah, we can kick back for a month. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much to Megan. So now it's time for our top tip this month with Hannah. Our top tip this month is all about helping birds that are nesting or raising their young. Each year, birds invest an incredible amount of time and energy to raise their chicks. And at this time of year, fledglings can be very vulnerable and slow, so try to drive slowly on country lanes, especially where there are hedgerows where birds might be nesting. Keep your dog on a lead and away from areas where birds nest, especially nature reserves and grassland where there might be ground nesting birds. If you are lucky enough to have birds nesting in your garden, try to give them the space they need. Make sure you provide food and water and make sure curious pets can't get to them. Ensure peanuts are crushed or in a feeder as they can be a choking hazard for baby birds. Avoid using chemicals or pesticides in the garden as these can be passed up the food chain to birds that feed on insects and of course avoid any cutting of trees or bushes until the end of the breeding season.
So that's it for our June episode. Halfway through 2021 already. Oh, God. That's scary. Very scary. Very. (laughs) Very scary. But a quick reminder of our Matter of Fact challenge. You can vote for Tom if you really want to. Yeah, you really should. You can go with the obvious choice and vote for me um, on our Instagram stories or our poll on Twitter. A quick reminder also that we are now open to visitors and of course we need your support. Birds of prey face varied, multiple and continued threats and our passion is to conserve them both in the UK and overseas every single day. And if you share that passion you can help too. Visiting us is a great way to help and you get an unforgettable day out too. What could be better? I don't think there could be much better than spending a day surrounded by our wonderful birds of prey in the lovely British countryside at the Trust. Yeah, well, we would say that, so you've got to come and see it for yourself. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, then there's loads more where that came from, so don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss out on an episode. If you'd like to know more about anything we've talked about in today's show, then you can head over to our social media pages and check out our blog that accompanies this podcast and loads more besides. So just search Hawk Conservancy Trust or go to at Hawk Conservancy on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. Next month, we'll be bringing you more from Megan McCubbin as we talk about her book, Back to Nature, and what it takes to be a wildlife writer. Yeah, I think it's going to be a brilliant one. It was really some fascinating chat with Megan and brilliant to hear about all the different things she's been doing. But from Hannah and I, it's goodbye. Until next time, see you then. See you then. Goodbye. Bye. 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 (laughs) Bye.